Hi, this is James Jokin of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Tonight, we're looking at fancy tropes and how to make them work. So sit back, relax, and let the geek fest begin. <laughs> For most writers, the hardest problem they've got is to make readers suspend their disbelief. That is, you want to take them on all these weird and wonderful places, but if you get going too crazy, you're going to lose readers. They just simply can't relate to whatever you're throwing at them. So what most writers do is they pretty much establish what the rules of the universe are relatively early on. You know, in a lot of cases this is easy. If we're dealing with, you know, most genres, it's just simply saying, hey, this is basically real world. We're going to be messing around with a lot of relationships. And hey, the reader's good with that. As long as the relationships don't get too crazy, hey, they're good to go is when you start messing around with the superhero, sci-fi, fantasy genres, that things get a little weird. Because at that point, you're going to start messing around with the physics of the real world. And, well, in a lot of cases, you'll lose a lot of the readers because the physics just don't work. That is, they're messy, they're inconsistent, and in a lot of cases, they just don't make sense. You know, if I'm dealing with real-world physics, if I drop a glass of water, it's going to crash into the ground, the glass is going to shatter, the water's going to go everywhere, and I'm going to have somebody mad at me just as I'm going to have a really nasty mess to clean up. You know, basic real-world physics. If I start dealing with superhero physics, you know, I've got to keep in mind that I've got to be consistent. You know, it's usually not a problem. You know, if I have somebody with laser vision, you know, I can count consistently writing down that the person has a red glow comes out of their eyes, that whatever that glow hits blows up, and if there's any changes in how it looks or how it acts, then obviously something different's going on, and that's got to be investigated or at least explained. You know, as in the real world situation of you can take readers anywhere you want them to as long as you have give them a baseline of expectations. And luckily the same thing pretty much applies to science fiction. Again, as long as it's the same physics that are applied consistently and if there's anything weird going on, you know, I've got a ready explanation or we're investigating what's going on, we're good to go. People tend to hate the good old uh, Doisex Mechina. And, you know, if the only reason things are going on is because I say they are, well, that's one of the big things readers hate. They don't like random things. Well, okay, to a degree. But the point here is that when it comes down to the physics of a universe, you can't have them behaving randomly. You need them consistent. You need them to act the same under similar situations. And if there's something weird going on, you know, people are going to get curious. If people don't start asking questions about what just happened and why it just happened, then the reader's going to get curious about the situation as well. And if it's not resolved reasonably quick, you know, you're going to lose readers. It'd be, the, it'd be roughly the same as, say, if I dropped the glass 
And instead of going down, it goes up. If there's not a reason for it, like, you know, there's some sort of anti-gravity situation, or in fact, I'm upside down, and the glass is actually going in the right direction, you know, that's an excuse. Even if it's an anti-gravity ball, you know, and I've explained that there are anti-gravity balls, and I've explained the reason, some of the basic rules for how those work, hey, I'm good to go. And yeah, this is a lot more work, but it's also a lot more worth it. I mean, you can do some really cool things once you, as long as you've got the reader acting as an ally. If you do anything to turn the reader off, yeah, your story is pretty much not going to get read, or at least not going to get read all the way through. So, if you are going to have something that involves some really weird rules, you need to explain what those rules are. I'm still pointing this out because if you're going fantasy, you're going to need to explain a lot of what's going on. And a lot of times, writers get a little bit on the lazy side. Not necessarily a bad thing. If you don't have to reinvent the wheel, then bloody don't reinvent the wheel. It saves a lot of time and a lot of effort. It means you don't have to worry about explaining how this you know, circular object goes places. You can just simply use it as a form of transportation. Better yet, rather than having to explain each and every little aspect of your world, you can have some general rules and then show the specific exceptions as you go along. This is where the idea of tropes comes in. Tropes are those really neat things that we as a society agree are not necessarily bad things. Yeah, they can get bloody annoying, don't get me wrong. But as long as you basically realize that we've got these tropes going on, all of a sudden that saves a lot of time and effort as far as a fantasy writer goes. You know, I can have like 27 zillion different races, but we expect that in a fantasy world. You know, we don't expect there to just simply be humans and humans only. We expect, you know, fairies, goblins, orcs, elves, you name it. To co along, to coexist alongside other races. It's just one of those really cool tropes that we don't have to explain, and therefore we can worry about more important explanations. You know, like who, you know, who's in charge, and more importantly, we can worry to a certain degree about the magic system, because as long as we, you know, it's just one of those things that by taking advantage of tropes, it just we can worry about the heavy lifting. We don't have to worry about the minor and consequential stuff. However, once in a while, it will start getting to the point where tropes get overused to the point where they become cliche. Clichés are bad. Clichés should be avoided. The easy way to avoid a cliché is to look at a trope, see why it works. More importantly, take it apart a little bit and see how it works. And then decide based on that information, whether or not we wanted to use that trope. You know, we don't have to use each and every trope that's out there. So, with that, I'm looking at some, 10 of the most overused tropes in the fantasy world and having a little bit of fun with them. Yeah, for the sake of our discussion, I'm assuming something's a little bit on the Tolkien-esque side, something you'd see if you're on a tabletop gaming table. 
you know, a little bit of D&D. You know, just a little bit of having fun. So with that in mind, here are those top 10 tropes I warned you about. Alright, let's start with the multiple races situation. Every fantasy world tends to have at least uh, two or three different races going around, even if they're subspecies of one or the other. You know, psychics and mages, if we have humans, for example, at the very least. Well, these sort of aren't that really hard to explain. I mean, in the real world, what ended up happening way back when is that we had Cro-Magnon Man, Neanderthal Man, and maybe a couple of others eventually get into some sort of evolutionary struggle. Well, so if I say, not everybody survived. Therefore, we've got one branch of humanity, good old homo sapiens. Well, in a lot of fantasy worlds, what you ended up having was diverting evolutionary paths. That is, for one reason or another, be it some wizard got crazy, you had a god come down, or even good old-fashioned, you know, basic evolution, you had a lot of different species develop over time. Now, there's basically two ways this can go. Obviously, you want to have a situation where these people are going to have a chance to all spread out. I mean, obviously, you can have them be in ultra-competition with each other over the same basic resources. You know, they fill the same niches, so on and so forth. But if you do that, then having multiple races makes absolutely no sense. Instead, what you see in a lot of fantasy realms is that each individual species has taken on its own niche and its own areas where it looks for resources. And it basically rules over that area. You know, that's why you have forests with elves in them. Uh, humans don't like dealing with forests because there's restricted movement. You know, whereas the slightly more graceful of life than elves are able to move around relatively free. Dwarves under the mountain dealing with craftsmanship issues. You know, even when you start dealing with, say... You know, D&D's Halfling, which is a race of diminutive beings that, you know, tend to fill out cracks. Well, they tend to live in the shadows. Even with orcs, they tend to focus in on, you know, pretty much beating things up. The point here is that each one of the races has its own niche. On top of that, it has its own ecology. And because of that, these different races can, to a certain degree, live together. The only problem you'll have, obviously, is if there happens to be a competition for a particular resource. You know, if the humans find out that there is a hill of gold, they're going to be in direct conflict with the dwarves, who like, well, dealing with goldsmithing. Um, obviously, you're not going to have a whole lot of elf and dwarf issues. On the other hand, you are going to have a lot of orc and pretty much everybody else because the orcs are going to try to put their brand on everything and try to take over to show that they're the top dog. Understandably, this is going to be a problem with all the other races. All I'm trying to say here is that you can have all these really cool races, just keep in mind that they have to have their own little niches and they establish the relationship based on those niches. 
you know. You know, obvious example here would be looking at Tolkien's Middle Earth. You've got the elves that are primarily in the forest, which is good. That allows him to deal with the spiders as well as all the really cool stuff a forest provides. You've got the halflings who are off on their own little area, or the hobbits, sorry, that are off on their own little area, you know, doing what hobbits do, which is pretty much finding new ways of eating food. You know, raising it, crafting it. If it basically comes down to a really cool sedentary lifestyle, hobbits are probably the people you want to talk to. you got dwarves that are pretty much underground, and you got orcs that are in Mordor, which is somewhere nobody else wants to be. Heck, you even have uh, specific areas where they're set up for ghosts. And, of course, you've got humans that are pretty much uh, taking over pretty much everywhere else. The only problem, of course, is that humans are starting to come into competition with the elves and the halflings. So, that's something that needs to be resolved. And, of course, interestingly enough, that is resolved towards the end of the story. We've got a few elves, or sorry, few, very few dwarves running around. And all the elves, for the most part, have decided to take off for other places. The orcs, of course, are for the most part killed, and that pretty much leaves just the halflings running around. So, it should prove to be sort of interesting. But, you know, we just, if you're going to do multiple races, don't have them going after all the same things and you should be good to go. Extremes in combat training. This is where things start getting really weird. Unlike other genres, where everybody pretty much knows a little bit about fighting, in fantasy you do have a lot of characters that are actually famous for having no combat skills. Where are you looking at you, wizards? And hey, thieves. Hello. The thing to keep in mind here is that, generally speaking, different people have different levels of combat skill. You have warriors and barbarians and all that that tend to focus in on combat, as well as, say, the monks and other martial artists. Understandably, these people are experts in combat. On the flip side, you've got your wizards and tradespeople who, because of their academic and training and so on and so forth, usually don't even bother picking up a sword in their entire careers. This in and of itself isn't a problem because they've got skills that contribute in other areas. So, you know, you've got sort of a definite give and take there. Of course, then you have your rogues who mingle with dueling or how to take advantage of people's weak spots. In essence, you're basically just looking at people from different backgrounds, have different levels of combat skill. It's just a matter of having a different focus, you know. This, toward you as a writer, works out really well because it means that you can trade off different skill sets for, you know, different advantages. If you want to have somebody who's big, tough, and gruff, set them up as a warrior. If they happen to know a little bit about metal forging, great. Or some other skill as a hobby, excellent. But that's not where their focus is. Their focus is to go into battle and basically wade through the enemy. Of course, this is going to create the situation where you've got one really tough character 
possibly guarding a couple of characters who have no clue about combat. But hey, that's really that works out even better because that means you've got areas where these characters can shine. And you've got this built into the system for you. So, for those trying to figure out... I mean, you've always got that one writer who's always having a problem trying to figure out how to make the individual characters, you know, look great. Well, if you've got, you know, one fighter who's a duelist, one who's an archer, and one who's an esoteric martial artist, hey, all of a sudden you've got different types of different combats that each one of them is going to do well in. You know, your archer is going to be able to snipe things from a long distance away and going to get into his own little contest with other snipers. He's also going to be the one who's going to be trying to figure out where the bad guys are and eliminate them surgically. Your martial artist is going to be getting into duels. Yeah, for the purpose of the discussion, I'm not looking at just your kung fu types, but I'm also looking at your experienced duelist. You know, these people, again, are going to go in for surgical strikes, but they're also going to be looking for the tough guys, you know, the, the specific targets, rather than going after a general mass. You throw in a berserker who likes going after general mass? Hey, see how easy it was to develop different areas for each character to shine? Is that not cool? So, just keep in mind that people have different areas of fighting depending on how well schooled they are in other areas. And there's going to be a definite trade-off there. If you're the best magic user in the universe, you're probably going to suck when it comes to sword play. And you're really going to be hitting shields. You're pretty much going to be the guy who just simply puts the shield up and hope for the best. As opposed to the guy who's constantly moving the shield so it deflects blows. Or even pushes other people away. So that trade-off in skill versus non-skill, or sorry, that trade-off in weapon versus non-weapon skill is a definite trade-off and definitely something worth exploiting. Wizard Towers. Okay, here's where things get weird. Well, I'm going to be saying that a lot, so my apologies. Um, wizard Towers are developed by wizards to basically, you know, look over this landscape. You see them in a lot of fantasy paintings, and you see a lot of wizards development at some point. Heck, um, going back to Tolkien, good old Isengard. You know, you basically have the sermon basically set up one that's the ultimate wizard's tower. Now, there's two basic theories on the wizard's tower. Actually, let's go three just to have a little bit of fun with this. First off, from the wizard's perspective... You've got something that's relatively easy to defend, um, usually away from prying eyes, obviously, and allows for some definite organization. That is, you can create a situation where each floor of that tower is devoted to a different field of study, and therefore set that floor up for, well, that field of study. If you want to set up an astronomy floor, for example, with telescopes and orreries and big, huge maps of the universe. Cool. Biology, you're going to have labs. You're going to have beakers full of weird things. You know. And if you have a necromancer, well, obviously you're going to have a lot of mortuary situations going on with bone saws and big slabs for tables. You 
seeing how this works out to your favor because you're going to have a very reasonably organized and you can actually focus in on those elements. Even if you're doing a library floor, you know, you're going to have to set up some situation where he's got a comfy chair to read, possibly a pipe, and then, of course, bookshelves all over the place. This obviously is also going to be a lot easier to defend because you can actually set up floors that are pretty much designed just to kill things. You know, if you're dealing with some sort of elementalist, hey, wouldn't it be cool to have this floor that's nothing but fire elementals? And unless you say a specific word, all these fire elementals will attack you? You know, what kind of cool image is that? And of course, you can also do basic defenses as well, like traps and soldiers. Want to do it that way as well. I mean, could you imagine a group of adventurers all of a sudden find themselves right in the middle of a soldier's barrack? Not going to go well for the adventurers. But, you know, that's pretty much theory. The first thing at school is basically it's just a place for the wizard to pretty much organize his thoughts, and he's doing it on a very literal, very anal way. Then you have the power-mongering wizards, who decided to set the tower up as basically a demonstration of just how powerful they are. This is where we introduce the concept of load-bearing wizards. And if you're a Conan the Barbarian fan, you know what I'm talking about. You're talking that as soon as that wizard gets killed, that tower ain't going to be long. You know... Which is sort of cool. It's the tower becomes an actual extension of the wizard's will. And therefore gives you some really great ways to delve into the wizard's personality. Which, you know, can actually be a little bit of fun. An actual physical representation of this wizard's subconscious. And, of course, there's the final school. Which is that basically they're just ways to tick off warriors. Literally. Mine is bigger than yours, because let's get real, is there anything more phallic than a wizard's tower? But, pick your skill, pick, pick your school, and have some fun with it. Giant monsters are another fun issue. In fantasy realms, you know, you're, you don't just simply have cute little puppy dogs. You have, oh my gosh, that thing's towering over me, dogs. You have dogs that are the size of small hills with huge fangs, big eyes, and really huge claws. And the entire purpose of these things is to kill, maim, and or destroy whatever's in front of them. Now, in real life, we've got no problem with a lot of big dogs. Look at the size of the Mastiff, for example. Um, but with fantasy, we start having some real fun with this. Nothing quite says potential bragging rights as seeing an actual large gargantuan sized T-Rex. In all honesty, you're going to have some idiot ecology wannabes that are going to point out the impossibility of these giant monsters. I'm going to point out three things to you real quick. First off, it's your world. Do what you want with it. If you want to have herds of T-Rexes running around, Go for it. However, if you want to play Eco Major for a second, keep in mind that one, fantasy realms tend to be evolution. This means that there's more oxygen in the air. One of the neat things is that if you go back and actually 
check things out, you'll find that the more oxygen that's in the air, the bigger the, the bigger the creatures are. Every curious why we have, you know, dragonflies that are maybe six to eight inches wingspan versus the two to four two to four feet from the really old days. It's because of the fact that there was more oxygen in the air, so therefore they didn't have the the breathing was a lot easier. And since you basically didn't have to worry about oxygen systems, you know, all that much, you could actually be as big as you want to be. Also keep in mind that prey is a lot more plentiful. You know, if you basically want to find a huge number of small herbivores to chow down on, usually not a problem. Again, cool thing about not having climate change. Yeah, I know, it's a weird way of looking at it, but... You know, the less pollution you have, the more, the less things the animals have to worry about, you know, eating or they die type of deal, the more plentiful your animals are going to be. And the more plentiful your trees and grasses and, you know, your, your baseline vegetation is going to be a little bit more interesting as well. So take advantage of it. You have all this food. For all your little herbivores. And once you have a humongous number of herbivores. Well hey you're going to need somebody to keep the herbivore populations in line right? Let me introduce you to Fluffy. My 40 foot tall Tyrannosaurus Rex. He is my herbivore population control measure. And if you really have to go into that bizarre world. Of where you need a scientific reason for this. Well. If you have all these wizards doing weird things, isn't it possible that these this magic could also cause mutations within the local animal population? And since magic is, after all, a demonstration of the wizard's subconscious to a certain degree, then obviously this is going to affect the local populations around that wizard's tower as well. Which is basically a really fun way of saying... If you want to have really disturbing monsters all around the particular wizard's tower to emphasize the personality of that wizard, hey, go for it. And let's not forget that the monsters over time are not going to be restricted to just that one physical area. So if you have, say, a half dozen of really evil wizards with some really disturbing problems, eventually it's not really that hard to see that those monsters that were mutated by those wizards' really dark thoughts would you know, basically breed true. And as they bred true, well, they would tend to propagate and therefore start going to other places. Keep in mind, of course, it applies to the good guys as well. So if you want to have big fluffy monsters, you now have an excuse. You know, like you really need one in the first place. You think you're going to have the really fun different thing of limited tech. You know, have you ever noticed that when you start dealing with a lot of these fantasy worlds, you don't get a whole lot of technological advancement? Well, that's because technology is used to solve problems. If you have some way of dealing with the problems, then you're not going to have to worry about technology, right? Ergo, if you have a really heavy magic world, or even a lightly magic world, Technological advancement is not going to be as heavy as it is in the real world. 
you can go literally hundreds of thousands or hundreds or thousands of years with no major technological advancement. There's probably going to be a lot of magical advancement, and there's even a possibility that all this advancement could be hitting a major plateau. You know, there's just simply no real reason to develop more magic once you hit a certain degree. And because you've got all this really cool magic running around, you don't need technology, you know? It, I've, I've, sorry. If I've got a way to magically heal somebody of all their diseases, I don't have to worry about developing vaccines or ways to deal with germs or viruses. Heck, I don't even have to look for ways to investigate the possibility of germs or viruses unless I really want to. And when I do, I'm not going to have to worry about microscopes. I can just simply cast a spell that create, either makes the germ or virus become really huge, which creates its own problems, or I can enhance my sight, or I can enhance other people's sight so they can see the same things I'm seeing. In short, I'm going to have a certain level of magic where I don't have to worry about problems, and because I'm not having to worry about problems, I'm not having to worry about advancing the technology. On the other hand, if you do have a situation where somebody's advancing technology, you might want to look into that. If I've got somebody who is totally magic dead, you know, the person cannot use any form of magic, then hey, they're going to start developing technology. And that's worth looking into it from a plot perspective. On the other side of that, you're also going to have limited magic. You know, we're basically going to be looking at gun control from this, in terms of spells. That is, your average person isn't really going to learn a lot of the magic, even though they might learn enough just to get, get around. A lot of people won't even bother with that. So you're going to have a lot of mages that are going to be, you know, magic specialists. That's fine. It's just the same as with real life once you start hitting the guild stage. You know, you've got, you go from everybody can pretty much fix the plows, farm rows, and build things to a situation where you've got carpenters that specialize in building things. You've got blacksmiths that specialize in keeping the plows and other metal instruments up, you know, up to date. And of course, you know, it's just a you're going to have a little bit more specialization. And yeah, as long as people don't, you know, as long as these guilds have one or two mages that specifically specializes in that particular field, hey, they're good to go. They can hire that person out for a ridiculous amount of money, especially if they're able to keep the education of those type of specialists down to bare minimum. So over time, you're going to basically see, you know, some really interesting limitations on who can do magic. And it's not just going to be from a capitalist like we're showing here. You know, where you're going to have a guild specialist whose big thing is that he can, you know, create walls a lot faster than everybody else because he can summon up earth elementals. Obviously, any guild will have a specialist. But again, you're going to be looking and not everybody has access to magic. In fact, it's probably going to be relatively rare. Somebody's going to regulate it, and somebody's going to make sure that the number of mages in the universe doesn't really go past a certain point. Heck, you have the universe itself come in and say, this is not going to happen. 
just by eliminating the amount of magical energy, for example. Or, you know, you can only have people that everybody has to have a different specialization or, you know, something. Of course, this also allows you to start having a little bit of fun with the psychology of those people you're dealing with. So, you know, I consider this to be sort of cool. Um, while we're looking at magic, let's look at prophecies. You know, there's always going to be prophecies in the magical world. Especially if you have a really strong religion. And yeah, you don't have to have a really strong religion. Again, look at Lord of the Rings. You know, can you really tell me what the religion of some of these people is? But if you do have a religion, then obviously having prophecies is going to help. You know, the prophecies are basically going to inspire the faithful and keep them on the right track. Because at that point, they've actually got a goal worth looking for, and they can either be trained to avoid a prophecy from coming true, or ensuring the prophecy eventually will. Obviously, that's also going to help in keeping things nice and organized. Especially when you start looking at the fact that not every prophecy is going to be translated by everybody the exact same. You know, that little bit of extra conflict, definitely worth it in and of itself. Keep in mind that not only is this proof of the magic actually working around in the universe, it can also be used to show that gods exist as well. I mean, the concept of an atheist in a fantasy realm is always a fun one because it's actually a form of insanity. That is, in most fantasy realms, you know that the gods are around because the gods actually do things every so often. And they do these things not in nice little subtle ways, but in, oh my gosh, I can't believe Ari did that type of thing. As a side note, if you really want to have some fun with and go a national treasure type of route, you can always ha have it set up that these properties are actually coded messages to the future. You know, you either have some sort of time travel or you've got some sort of situation where you need to have a message that gets through to people that can actually use it. Therefore, a coded prophecy is actually going to work out really well for you. Oh yeah, and let's not forget to mention the dreaded evil overlord who's going to love prophecies because they're going to be able to help him keep the population in line. I mean, if, nothing if there's an actual real prophecy that's definitely going to happen, well, the evil overlord is going to figure out ways to make sure that this prophecy doesn't happen. You know, if it involves the youngest son who happens to be of a minor who happens to be wearing a yellow hat, well, hey, all he has to do is make sure there's no yellow hats and eliminates the prophecy, right? Yeah, let's ignore Sleeping Beauty in this part, people. But at the same time, he could also spread around a fake prophecy and make it seem like he's actually defending the people from some sort of monster that could be showing up in the real world. And nothing keeps people more, uh, you know, as long as he basically shows that the prophecy is starting to come true or could come true at some point, hey, he's good to go. Just weird things to keep in mind. You're also going to have two issues with adventurers. First off, keep in mind that in such a world, you're going to definitely have adventurers. You're going to have people that are curious, that are looking for ways to expand the world and check things out. And that's basically where your adventures come in. 
I don't care if you're looking at, say, the rogue looking for the next big score, or a mage looking for some secret of magic. And as long as you've got those people going somewhere, well, you're then going to have people that are trying to prove themselves. In fact, this even has a... If you want to really look at history, this actually used to be the case. You'd have the youngest sons of a noble decide that, well, they weren't going to get much of their inheritance because they basically weren't. I mean, most of the stuff went to the eldest son. The second son got pretty much everything else. And, well, with family sizes of, you know, seven or ten not being that unpopular, the youngest sons would have to basically figure out some way to, well, make their fortune. As well as possibly set themselves up in case something happened to the first or second son. So, you actually did have a lot of real life adventurers. You know, they were basically looking for gold fashioned treasure to send back home to prove that they could actually do things. And like I said, you're going to have people that are basically out there just proving that they can do things. I mean, if I've got the world's biggest uh, barbarian who's trying to show how strong he is, then probably arm wrestling people at the local tavern is just not going to cut it after a while. He's going to want something bigger, badder, and, well, meaner. Easy way to find that? Go out to the edges of the uh, edges of the world and see what's there. Um, obviously, status is going to be another thing. The bigger the badder things you deal with, the more status you're going to have. The bigger secrets you find, you know, the cooler you're going to be looking at. And if you can actually find some really huge stash that nobody's been able to uncover, that money is going to definitely increase your status. So, there actually are reasons for people to adventure in a fantasy world even if they are discouraged from it, from the evil overlords and local nobility. Because let's get real, nothing is more disruptive to the local economy than some adventurer bringing in a stash of gold. If you need a real world on that, just look at Alaska, where you're actually spending $100 for a group of eggs during their gold rush. On the other hand, if you're a really intelligent noble or pretty much anybody else for that matter, you're going to realize that having a lot of these adventures around is actually a pretty cool thing. Reed, you don't want to have to, you know, a reasonably sized reward backed by a splitting of the loot is going to encourage a lot of people to go do whatever you want them to do. Reed, you've got this really large group of expendable people that you don't have to pay more than once or twice. And hey, a lot of times you don't even have to pay them that. Just simply say, hey, this is what you get if you return. And then if it's horrible enough, hey, they might accomplish the goal, but it's not likely they're going to be returning. So you've actually accomplished a great deal for maybe the price of a meal. You know, that's definitely going to be worth looking into. Um... Adventurers also tend to redistribute wealth. Yeah, this can get a uh, major irritant, especially if you've got a couple of nobles who have a reputation for being wealthy, and then all of a sudden you've got this adventure coming in with a literal couple ton, couple hundred tons of gold. 
But at the same time, that's going to be a really fast way of redistributing wealth. You know, for your econ majors, this is not necessarily a bad thing. It means that all of a sudden you've got a way to increase tower sizes, wall sizes. Um, you want to work on your health infrastructure? Hey, your adventure's coming with all this gold? Really cool thing. You know, it's a little um, socialist, but, you know, you, the bottom line is, is that you've got all these people with lots of money who are willing to spend it. So let them. Um, and while we're at it, not only can they redistribute wealth, but they can also redistribute information. You know, back in the medieval days, bards were seen as royalty. And all they basically did was they took information from one area, spread it to another area, and kept on, picked up a little bit of that information and kept spreading it. You know, bard shows up, it's like, hey, you had a really, you had an actual news reporter of sorts that could actually you know, for the price of a meal and some lodging could actually let you in on what's going on in the real world. So, overall, not only are they, you know, redistributing wealth, but they're also redistributing information. Which means if you need to get away, you know, information to somebody and you don't really care about the speed, go get one of these adventures, tell them your news, and have them spread it around. And if you really want a fun concept, there's the dreaded heretic monkey. Um, heretic monkey is basically with chimpanzee tribes in the real world. In essence, every so often you have a monkey that gets really tired of the situation with his gang, and he goes off and finds another one. Now, admittedly, he's going to get beat up and may not live long, but if he does live long, odds are he's going to reproduce, which means that the genetic material from that monkey is going to be spread into the new gang, and because there's brand new genetic material in that group, they're not going to be as inbred as, say, other groups that are pretty much, you know, they don't never allow strangers in. Relative to organizations, this is really cool because it means that you can have somebody split off from one group and spread something into another group from that organization. Uh, fighting tactics, spellcasting secrets, um, better way to make a sword, so on and so forth. Heretic monkeys work really good when you talk, start looking at civilization. And of course, last but not least, is the dreaded bar. The bar, well, okay, the reason the bar works in a lot of tropes is because, well, you're looking for a place that can actually, you know, where a lot of people are going to be together, where you can actually hold job interviews, so on and so forth. And you actually see a lot of adventurers end up setting their own bars. First off, the bar is going to let your characters let loose. That is, they can do things inside of a bar you know, get drunk, have fights, so on and so forth, that they can't more socialist areas. Read, you basically can't go to the local bar and get into a brawl. 
On top of that, this is a really weird place because it allows you to have a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds mixing in the same area. Which means if you're trying to figure out a way to get a lot of weird, a lot of different characters together, like the duelist, a mage, and a goldsmith, and you're trying to figure out a way to get these guys together, hey, the bar is the easiest way to do it. In fact, having adventurers meet in the bar right off the bat is, you know, one of the basic fantasy tropes. Um, like I said, they're also great for interviews. You know, you're trying to find a particular adventuring type. You put out news, have everybody meet at this at one area, pay for drinks, and hey, you can start interviewing people all day long, and you wouldn't believe the kind of people that show up. You know, obviously, again, if you're trying to figure out a weird way to get people together, the interview process works. It also works if you're trying to do some literary cameos. Well, bars are great for literary cameos anyway, but, you know, just something to consider. And because they are easy to set up, if you want to have a retiring adventurer, hey, your bar is going to be using you to do. You know, you expend some money for the place, and no matter how bad it actually does, it's always going to be economically viable, because it's always going to have money. I mean, let's get real, it doesn't really take all that much, in terms of fantasy terms, to keep a bar afloat, as opposed to today. So, where does all this leave us? Multiple races are infinitely easy. Just remember to keep every race has its own niche and you're going to be good to go. Orcs are battle. Um, elves are great for archery and forest. Dwarves underground. There's some actual ecological reasons for these cliches. Take advantage of them. Extremes in combat training. Not only, basically, this is the trade-off between combat skill and non-combat skills. The other cool thing is by taking advantage of it and by specializing people in very specific combat or, for that matter, non-combat areas, they come in with built-in area where they can shine. Wizard Towers. Your choice. You can either use it to show off the intelligence and the mentality as well as the subconscious of the wizard. You can have this really cool climatic moment because the tower was based off of will, the willpower of the wizard who built it, so the wizard power goes, yeah, this is your basic load-bearing wizard. Or, you can just have it set up to annoy all the fighters in the area because mine is bigger than yours will ever be. Um, giant monsters. They work, and you can either have them as naturally occurring or have them as manifestations of who's ever wielding the most power in the area. Either way works. In fact, they work rather well together. And keep in mind that giant monsters based off nightmares and dreams will tend to eventually wander away from where they began. So they're going to be worldwide. Just something to consider. Um... You're going to have limited problems to solve because of magic, so you're going, to also, you're going to have limited technology. At the same time, you're going to have definite rules and social worries set up regarding who can use what kind of magic, so the magic is going to be limited to begin with. Even if it's really cool to have everybody be able to cure disease and small wounds, odds are you're going to have that, a very specialist person doing that. Sort of can do our doctors and nurses today. 
just so you don't have to have everybody literally knowing magic in order for it to be effective. Um, prophecies, depending on how you want to look at it, can either keep everybody in line or they can inspire everybody. And sometimes a little bit of both. So, prophecies all of a sudden, as a writer, just became one of your best friends. Adventures are not only going to be part of the economy because there's, there's so many really cool things that they do for the overall society, but there's also a lot of really great reasons people adventure in the first place. In essence, they become a really great resource for you as a writer, especially if you don't want to have everybody be in the palace. And of course, there's the bar. You want to see people let loose and be a little bit more violent, a little bit more vulgar, the bar is your place. You want to get everybody together, the bar is your place. And if you want to retire an adventure and just get them out of the way, yeah, we don't need we don't need retirement villages. We just have these people get everybody else drunk. So, hopefully that works. Talk to you later.